You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are back with our second week covering Alex Pavesi's Eight Detectives. Herds is in the hot seat. Flex. We are going from chapters 6 to 13 today, which means that you have now read all seven to completion of Grant McAllister's mysterious white murders. Which means that I know exactly what's going on and it's very clear and I have no questions about timelines mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. time travel for that matter, anything crazy like that. I'm very excited to get into the the meta narrative for this one because Alex Pavesi has left us quite the breadcrumb trail. Yeah, it's pretty interesting the way that we have these stories set out as we were talking about last week on the show. They sort of are getting more complicated the further that we get in. Mm. And you can kind of see that from the cast list alone. I won't sit here and list characters to you, (laughs) but our collection of suspects just keeps getting longer and longer. Until we get to the shadow and the staircase, of course. Yes, where suspiciously we have very, very few characters altogether. And no suspects at all, really. But the other thing that's really interesting about this section is that we are much more clearly getting into direct criticism of specific murder mystery texts. Yeah, I mean, the the most obvious one is Trouble on Pearl Island, which is pretty clearly an homage, almost a ripoff of And Then There Were None. Even the characters, you know, there's, there's a doctor, who is clearly a standing for the for the judge of the original text. There's the the servants who who die together on the beach. Like there's all these characters. There's the old religious lady and the young, like bird in a cage character. Mm-hmm. The only thing we're missing is the rhyme, but all the characters in the story seem to have been pulled from and then there were none. But the way that we kind of look at it is more focused on the aftermath. We yes. we don't watch these characters go through the motions of their demise. We come in after the facts and kind of explore the island after the carnage has already occurred and the characters try to kind of piece it together. The other stories critiquing murder mystery being clear aren't necessarily in ways that are a direct pastiche of the texts that they're critiquing. Sure. I would have to very abruptly spoil some other books to tell you exactly what criticism is going on. But if you've read them, you will recognize them quite clearly. And then there were none is definitely the one that sticks out as being like, okay, I I don't need to bury this one away behind spoiler warnings. I mean, in Inferno in theater land, I I don't know that I enjoyed this story as much as the others, but I did Mm. really find the, the ending to be very interesting because we set up this complicated thing with, you know, all these, this, these are the murder weapons, these are the ways in which the person could have been killed and there's a fire going on. Yeah, there's all these different threads, but at the end, a guy just walks into the room, says, hey guys, I'm here for the party. And the detective is like, oh, you, you, you did it. You, you all did it. I figured it out because of this one crazy party guy who shows up out of nowhere. Like uh-huh. it, it feels very contrived, which- of course it does. But, it's yeah. interesting that you say that because that wasn't the part of the ending that stood out to me the most when oh. I went through. The part is actually the aftermath after she said her solution and she kind of wanders off and it ends on this really strange closing line of her being like cleansed by the flames. Sure. But to me that reads as her like walking into the the fire. Yeah. Well, it feels like a resolution when there wasn't really a resolution at all. The characters just kind of leave, right? right? It's such a strange line to mm. end on when the the text clearly doesn't support the direct interpretation of the line. No, I agree that it's like it's a sort of the juxtaposition there of literally what happens in the story. You know, the resolution of the crime, which is very unsatisfactory. Mm. And then this powerful emotional moment at the end 
where Helen seems to have gone on a journey that we weren't really privy to. Yeah. It's it's super strange and there's something that sort of is happening with a bunch of these stories the further we go in mm. where their conclusions are all starting to feel much more open about these sorts of discrepancies we were talking about. Like yeah. the the length of the guy's neck, for example, in the detective and his evidence was a very obvious clue that got forked in the ending of the story. Mm. But as we get into like trouble on Blue Pearl Island and there's like a, a mechanical trap that like chops one of the investigators' necks off. Yeah, well, I mean- Like, he gets decapitated. <laughs> it's a very hurried ending, isn't it? It doesn't really seem to fit. It really doesn't. All these stories have these strange discrepancies, but it's, as you say, it becomes more blatant that there's some laziness going on. Particularly when we look at her, uh, the inconsistencies in Inferno and Theaterland, she points out that there are lots of things that are black when they're clearly are meant to be white. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't seem so strange if you look at the cat and the, the white suit being changed to a black suit. Those make sense as like intentional discrepancies to some degree. Mm -hmm. But uh, black wine doesn't make any sense. It's almost as though someone has just searched that story for the word white and hit replace all with the word black without regard for the consequences of that change the 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 use of the word laziness surprised me there because Does the it? discrepancies that we've had in the other stories are perhaps more explicable than the replace allish nature of the word white from black but yeah as far as i can tell the story is set pre-computers mm. so it still would have had to have been done by hand. It's still a deliberate choice, you still know, a task point. that was undertaken. Yeah, I don't know. I I guess maybe it was done in a, in a fit of emotional passion. I don't know. I'm not sure. Mm. I'm not sure exactly. It, it should, I guess, to me, say something about the character of Grant and why he wrote it that way. It's also interesting because when we look at Julia, in the first couple of stories, she was referring to the discrepancies as like, a fault she is someone who's working with a publisher is like i'm slightly alarmed that there is a, a a quality error in this text that i'm considering publishing but now that she's seen a few more of them she's still curious about their connection to the murder of elizabeth white but she's a bit more along for the ride in terms of being like oh okay it's a cool oddity i understand that this is like done with intention but there is still a very strange aura to the way that they discuss it. I don't know if that was coming through to you. Uh, well, I think there's, I mean, there's definitely some back and forth going on here. Uh, Julia is definitely, I think that she's more aware of, of Grant's mindset and Grant's intention. I get the sense that she's an intellectual equal, if not surpassing the Grant that she's speaking with. I feel like she's trying to figure him out in the same way that, that he's trying to figure her out, you know? There's sort of a, a mind game going on there around the content of the novel and, and where it came from. Well, yeah, because it's also like so many of these stories, particularly like Trouble on Blue Pearl Island, we were comparing it to and then there were none and the, the novel definitely is as well. But Trouble in Blue Pearl Island is so framed in like mechanized horror tropes. That it just it felt so weird and intentionedly out of place. I suppose so. I feel like it's experimental, right? It's taking a different spin on the traditional murder mystery. Like it's, I think it's the most explicitly about a specific case, a specific golden age mystery. Yeah. Um, and so the intent of the, the original author was to try to tackle it from a different angle and mm -hmm. create something unique there. 
Okay, well then, what, what about the shadow on the staircase, the literal ghost story? Well, <laughs> let me tell you. Uh huh. The secret, the secret as to why that 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 book is not actually finished, and why a lot of these endings don't seem to be quite uh, the original of, of what they used to be, is that the Grant that wrote these novels, Flex, mm-hmm. is is dead. That is the big conspiracy. So who's the Grant we're speaking to then? That would be Francis Gardner, my my dear Watson. Francis, that was the the name on the like the cigarette case. The cigarette uh, case, which yes. when questioned, the Grant that we're speaking with looks very panicked and says, "Yes, I used to smoke, but not anymore." Mm-hmm. And obviously, in that moment, is not thinking about the fact that that case is not addressed to Grant McAllister but is in fact addressed to uh, Francis Gardner, the student of Grant McAllister, who has taken up the work of his former mentor after his his death. This is getting more and more complex as we go. I know. And I, to be honest, I don't even know that I've figured everything out. Okay. okay. I feel like I'm about halfway to the truth. We'll tell you what, Herds. We should should take a pause, come back with your theories in just a second. Uh, and I need to know what you have figured out. Everything. <laughs> Not that much. Not that much, let's be honest. Alrighty. Well, this is your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3. Flex and Hertz here discussing Alex Pavese's Eight Detectives, also known as the Eighth Detective in some parts of the world. We'll be back with Hertz theories in just a second. Stick around on your Murder Mystery World Tour. You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex here, and today we are joined on the show for a special interview by 2SER's own Irene Diakonastasis, talking with author Kelly Hawkins about her latest psych thriller, Apartment 303, laden with plenty of mystery twisties. Apartment 303 follows a PI living apart from the world, but I will let Irene take it from here. Today, I'm joined by the wonderful Kelly Hawkins, who is here to talk about her new novel, Apartment 303, releasing on March 8th. Kelly, thank you for joining us. Hi, Irene. Thanks for having me. For listeners looking for a new read, how would you describe Apartment 303? Um, I guess I call it a domestic thriller in that it's a domestic suspense. It's an Australian novel, so it's set in Sydney, and it's about um, a woman in her 20s, Rory, who, um, who has some mental health issues. She's had trauma in her past. And she's um, she doesn't go out of her apartment very often. She she watches through her window. It's about what happens um, one day from her from her room. She doesn't doesn't witness a murder, but she sees there's a man murdered across the road from her, a homeless man. So she uh, doesn't see this, but she sees the police arrived, and she's sort of drawn into the outside world when she hasn't really had to to, to do that for a very long time. She's been inside for for a number of years. So it's basically about. Um, what happens to her and whether her past is going to come back to to, um, to get her, I suppose. Very, very mysterious from that description alone. <laughs> now, before we get into Rory, I think we should talk a bit about you. So now, what was your motivational inspiration to write this particular story? Yeah, there's a couple of things with this story, actually. Um, the first thing, I suppose, that came, that, that started the, the this whole story off was this event of the homeless man being murdered um, was actually something that happened in my life like 25 years ago. Oh, wow. When, yeah, I actually lived in the building that I've put in the novel is not 
um, it's fictional, but it's essentially in the same place as where I lived with my uh, then boyfriend who became my partner, my husband. And we did, like that did happen. A man was murdered across the road. Um, oh, yeah. So it's sort of, it stemmed from that. And it's, it's not, I mean, I wasn't as involved in it, obviously, as what I've um, fictionalized. But it was still something that obviously stuck with me even all these years later. Yeah, and there was one particular man that that is kind of the equivalent to long socks in the book. So it kind of stemmed from that. And then I, I suppose I then the, the second part of the story was was Rory with her, um, what has happened to her in the past and, and why she might be watching and, and what might happen. Um, so I was interested in the in the issues that she had. Rory is this very complex character, and not only does the choice of using a first-person narrator really bring us into her stream of consciousness, but I feel like readers almost develop a sense of companionship with her as they try and work out the truth of the plot. So yeah. despite being a fierce character, would you say at times that she comes across as a bit of an unreliable narrator? Yes, I would. I do have a bit of a. I, I do quite like the old unreliable narrator. Um, I think it's, you've got to be a little bit cautious with it, especially there's a lot of Rory in this book. <laughs> um, there's a lot of focus on her, and yes, I think the part of that was trying to bring in a little bit of the claustrophobia and a little bit of yeah that we understand kind of what she's going through that we can really relate to her. It was it was deliberate, yeah, to to do that, but she's definitely there's some aspects of her that are unreliable. And I think I think at first, particularly, perhaps, um, we're not sure how this is going to pan out. And, yeah, I don't want to give too much away about the plot, but she she definitely could go either way. And um, But I think there's also, yeah, like you said, a little bit of compassion and understanding of, of what she's like as well. So it's kind of flipped around a little bit. During the day, Rory works for her aunt's private investigation business. Now, given your background, I understand that you write reports for private investigators for a living. I, yeah, I do. So that, yeah, I do um, write reports. They're not as, uh, it's not as thrilling as it sounds. It's interesting, but so I write reports. They'll have surveillance uh, operatives that, that um, it's mostly for workers' compensation and insurance kind of claims. And then I'll write up a report that the um, that the surveillance uh, private investigator gives me um, that then would go to the client. I think part of being a writer is just an interest in in other people. It's, it's that thing of you know you can imagine you imagine what they might be doing or or other things about them. And yeah, so yeah, I, I do. So she, I gave her that job because it it kind of also ties in with her being a watcher um, that she can you know she can do that from her house and she can feel like she's somewhat involved in the world by writing these reports where she where she watches other people, even though she's still alone most of the time. Not to give too much of the story away, but as <laughs> Rory slowly starts to try and conquer her fear, she starts to make some friends along the way. Now, what characters or any character dynamics between Rory and other characters in the novel did you particularly enjoy writing? Or- yeah, well, that would definitely be, definitely be Rory and Farrah because I think I think um, having her become friends with the, with someone younger than her seems seemed natural to me because in some ways because she's been you know on her own for so long she's got a young way about her like a naivety I suppose um, that would relate I think to a younger person it's kind of like she's stopped changing when she got to seventeen or eighteen um, so she'd be friends I think with someone younger so for me their relationship is is interesting, um, but there was also that element that she 
I had to make sure Rory knew she was the adult. So that relationship was important. And I suppose the relationship she had, there was a couple really, because she has a, a nice relationship with Ron, who lives downstairs, not doesn't live downstairs, he's the security, the main security guard. So she's had a lot to do with him over the years. Um, and he's a bit of a an older, wiser man that she feels that she's she's worried that it's another another concern for her is that he's going to retire and and she'll be left um, with one less friend I suppose so she has that concern in the back of her mind and their relationship I think even though it's not extremely close I think over a number of years you, you grow to have quite strong relationships with people uh, that uh, that have that sort of a role in your life that you might see every day that one was important and then then there's the relationship she has with Simon which is which is a man who moves into her building, um, and there's a little bit of a, a romance there, but not um, not an excessive one because she's still she's still quite nervous um, about or anything to do with that uh, a romance or or just becoming close to anybody. So for her to start trusting him, I think was important, and I was trying to make him the sort of person that you could see that she would trust because she's going to be particularly nervous, and he'd have to be pretty special, I think, to to draw her out uh, and become, you know, um, more than friends with her. So, yeah, there's a few relationships. And that was that was challenging because it was all taking place in the one apartment. So she needed people to – she needs people to, to interact with. So I had to work out ways to bring them to her and to, you know, move the plot forward. <laughs> it's a challenging thing. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really interesting. Now, you've touched on it a bit before, but mental health and exploration of the human psyche is a, a consistent theme within this novel. Mm-hmm. Now, the mental and emotional focus on Rory's character arc definitely drives a lot of this, but how would you say Rory's character evolves throughout the novel? Or would you say it goes through this process of evolving or self-actualization? Yeah, I think so. I mean, she's... She starts off, obviously, there's a lot of fear in her, but she's also quite capable. Um, she can, she's still, she's comfortable, I suppose, in a way, in her in her apartment, but there's also this desire to, to get out and to, she knows she's missing out on life. So I think the things that happen to her in the book and and meeting the new people and the world coming in that she can't help, all those things kind of help her to become more trusting of other people. Obviously, things are happening to her that aren't good, so she should in some ways become less trusting. But I think she learns that she can have other people help her and she finds friends that might, you know, stand by her. So I think I think she moves forward and I think it's more to do with the ability to, to escape. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of growth that she goes through in the course of the novel. Do you see this kind of empowerment within her character? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. She's always been self sufficient, but not in a not in the way that yeah, that will help her leave. Apartment three oh three is released on March eighth. And a massive thank you to Kelly for doing this interview. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you to Irene Diakonastasis for that interview with Kelly Hawkins on Apartment 303. If you want to find out more about the book, we will have links up on the podcast. And there is an even longer version of that interview up on the 2SER website at 2SER.com. Thank you to HarperCollins Publishers Australia for getting Irene a copy of that book. We'll be back with more of Eight Detectives in just a second. Stick around on your Murder Mystery World Tour. (laughs) 
you're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour, discussing Alex Pavese's Eight Detectives, chapters 6 to 13, Herds. You just told me (laughs) that a man is dead in a murder mystery, and I quite frankly can't believe you. I know. I can't believe that there is death in my murder mystery, in my detective fiction. How dare there be a detective Did and a murder. Fred McNamara, or whatever his name is, <laughs> what? kill Grant McAllister? Fred? Who was Fred? I don't know. What, what, what was the guy's name? It was just the name off a cigarette case, Herds. What? Francis Gardner. Francis, Francis. Gardner. So here's the thing. This whole story is about- Are you kill him in a garden shed? I hope so. I hope so. But may- maybe, maybe- this whole story is about like simplifying things and whittling them down to the bare nub. But anyway, I went over the tomes and I and I realized that there was there was some strangeness to the way that Grant was speaking because he seems very confident in speaking about the mathematics and the theory, but when it comes to actually speaking about the stories, he seems to have no clue what he's on about. Yeah, he's he's like Almost uh, kind of making up the theories alongside the stories that he's just heard. Like maybe he doesn't know which one relates to each story. He's hearing the story and going, "Oh, that's just like well, this." That's, yeah. Well, the thing is that there is a change in in um, in tone of Grant as he switches between the different time breaks. I think that this is to do with the questions that Julia is asking. Because she has to know that the Grant that she is speaking with is not the real Grant. There's lots of allusions to like relationships breaking down Mm -hmm. and the way that we talk about how incompetent detectives are. I think that the stories were written by the original Grant McAllister. Okay. Inspired by uh, the the white murder of Elizabeth What's-Her-Face. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth White. That's the one. Thank you. <laughs> I knew there was something there. Uh, anyway, Elizabeth White, the, the white murder. I think that it was inspired by her death, but that before he could publish the stories, he died of his of his own circumstances. Do you think that those own circumstances have appeared in the text before us? Yes, I'm struggling to, it's the timeline. I hate time puzzles. Because the curious question is, is if his death, if the original Grant McAllister's death appears in the text that we have read, Mm. it would mean that Francis Gardner had gone through and edited that in. So why does Francis not know the text, if you're saying that? I think that- he has read the stories and, you know, he wants to publish them to, like, remember his uh, his his old friend. Oh, also, I don't think that they're just friends. I think that they were lovers. That's why, okay. that's why Grant hasn't remarried in 20 years or hasn't seen his wife in 20 years, but he has the butted headstone in his backyard. I reckon that's Grant's, the original Grant's grave. Okay. And I think that they, like, ran away with to this island to write and talk about math together. Like all good homosexual couples do. Yes. That's when tragedy struck. I think that probably the new Grant, who was Francis, caused the death of the original Grant. I want to say by him being blown off a cliff or something like that. 
Like, okay. There's, 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 a, there's a detail that keeps popping up in these stories, and that's the the boot print in, in white. Yeah. But the new Grant says that he stays on the island because all of his memories are there. And clearly that means that it's Francis's memories of Grant. Yeah. Um, and possibly this is even where he died. I think this makes sense to me, but you still haven't answered my question. Which question? Which question? Well, if Francis, if Grant's death is foreshadowed in this book, yes, Francis would have had to have written it in, which would mean that your observation that he doesn't know the stories doesn't make sense. And that is your evidence for suggesting that there are two Grants in the first place. Because I respect Alex Pavesi so much, I want to say that yes, 100%, there, there is foreshadowing for the real death. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, he he can have changed the endings, and then he's just saying to Julia, like, "Oh, I don't remember." He's like lying. Okay, so you think like, he's you think he's lying about? Yes. Sorry, okay. maybe I didn't clarify that properly. I think that when she says, "Why do these facts not line up?" He goes, "Oh crap, those don't line up." Uh, it was a joke. Uh huh. Even though it was clearly like him changing the ending because. Because of reasons, because maybe because of the things that remind him too much of Grant, maybe. Yeah, a bit of, a bit of clumsiness in that he's not the the writer of the two Grants. Well, that's the thing. I think that he, yeah, I think that he has like edited the text. I don't think that he is the talented writer of the two. That's why there's uh-huh. not just like strange inconsistencies, but there are some points of the plot that like feel off like in in, in theater land when the lady goes oh it's not my ring but actually it is my ring mm-hmm. but actually it's not my ring like that feels very very awkward mm-hmm. and also in the cursed village there is like a there's a there's a gay subplot in that text that is taken out the two doctors seem to be in love and that's completely forgotten and suddenly dr lamb is going out with lauren which is mm-hmm. contrast with his earlier his earlier character as he's established in the opening. I think that the changes are all being made to, to erase evidence of their relationship. Let's say that that seems like a good point to lean on. All right. So interesting (laughs) to sum up your theory, then two grants, there's two grants. One of them's dead. One of them is Francis Gardner. Yes. Francis Gardner went in and edited their relationship out of the books into and out of the white murders. I'm going to say out of, why do you say into? When did he edit it into? Well, because he's saying there was foreshadowing of his death. You know what? I'm just going to say that that doesn't exist. Okay. Let's just forget about that. All right. Because I said probably I don't have any any examples of that, any concrete evidence. I'm just going to say it's not in there and Alex can kill me later. The, the biggest problem I have with your theory, Ben. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Is that Grant in the story was delivered the copy of the story we are reading by Julia. He sent this copy away just after the original Grant had died. Why did he do that? How did the story end up in Julia's uh, blood type publishing's hands? Oh, when he hasn't actually, he, he probably doesn't want any attention brought to these things. Like you mentioned it might be for money or to like preserve his memory, but like it seems like it was dug up from their archives, not that it was sent to them. Right. Because it's all it, these are all private books, and that would explain that why these um, it's not laziness; it's rushed than it would be, right? Mm. I think the only thing that I can kind of lean on here is that do they say how old Julia is? Probably not, right? I mean, she is adult; she's working. She's adult. Yes, they do say that Grant slash Francis Francis left his wife 
20 years ago? Are you suggesting that Julia is his, his daughter? Daughter? I think that that would be the most salient point to lean on. But how did how did she end up with a copy if he's like trying to stay away from his family? Ooh, that is a great question. He might have sent his family a copy. <laughs> You're just gonna just gonna go with a nice simple explanation. Uh, I look. I'm sure there's a more complicated answer here. There is. There definitely oh, no. is a more complicated answer. And okay, I'm gonna say that he locks a copy, the only copy of the story, up in a chest, in a uh-huh. no way, in a message bottle, and sank it to the bottom bottle. of the sea. And then Julia came across it, and she said, "My goodness, this sounds just like." My estranged father, who I've never met, and she opened up the bottle and she she knew, and so she had to find him. And final question. <laughs> Elizabeth yep. White is only the inspiration for all of these murder I think, mysteries? I think so. I don't you think, think that that's all actually, a red herring. You I'm going to say yes. I don't think that anyone actually killed her. I think that that would be. You don't think anyone sort of killed thing. her. You think that Elizabeth White oh, just died. Why would you write about a, a murder that you did? If you, because everybody gets strangled in that book. Everybody gets strangled in the curse of everybody village. Everybody does get strangled. I think it's inspiration. I think that it's it's the equivalent of starting a writing class and you put a topic on the board and you say uh-huh. strangling, and then you go write, and that's that's what I'm going to go with. Yeah, it's like you you know you you're teaching a student. Yeah, that's ah. Look at that. It all ties together. It was inspiration. Exactly. Makes sense to me. Anyhow, Herds, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Best of luck for the points for next week. I guess we'll see how we go. I hope for at least one point. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3. We are talking Alex Pavese's Eight Detectives. We'll be back all the way to the end of the story next week on the show. Look forward to having you join us then. And we'll see how we go next time. That we will. This is Death of the Reader. We're out of here.